Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group, and it is Friday, May 20th. And it is my pleasure to introduce our guest, uh, author Polly White. Polly, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Okay. Um, well, Chicky, about 10 years ago, I moved into the consulting realm, but before that, I was um, the head of human resources for three different mid-sized companies here in the Richmond area where I, where I live. And um, as I said, about 10 years ago, I quit my job and said I wanted to start teaching and consulting in the areas of people management, management development, and human systems. So I started my own firm, and I'm still doing it 10 years later. And how did that translate into becoming an author? I'm always interested in that that bridge of uh, putting what you know down on, on paper. Well, about two years ago, I took on a partner, and this may be interesting. I actually took my husband as a partner in my firm. He left his work and, and joined me. He has expertise in operations, strategy, and finance. Mm. So at that point, we expanded the offerings of Whitestone Partners, our firm, and started working with more small to mid-sized companies. And we noticed that there were a lot of challenges, especially for businesses that were growing and the changing role of the principal, what the owner or the principal had to do as they grew their business. And it actually happened in a sports bar over a pitcher of beer and some cheesesteaks. We were sitting there um, talking about our clients, and we started talking about the the role of the different roles that they played. And we started talking about, well, you know, when they're very, very tiny, just getting started, maybe what we call a solopreneur, you know, one-person right. operation, or maybe they have a couple of helpers, but they're really doing the primary work of the business, that their role was so different than some of the mid-sized organizations we were working with. And we started thinking about what could we say to help them make those transitions. And that discussion, which turned out to be about a two-hour lunch for us, and it really was the birth of the book. I grabbed my notebook and started taking notes, and by the end of it we had a basic outline for that book. Wow, and so how long did it take you to get the book written and then uh, are you self-publishing? Um actually we have a publisher. We're with Polari, which is a local Richmond publisher. But uh-huh. um no, we do have a do have a publisher. Uh but we took about a year and a half. We interviewed over 100 small and mid-sized companies in the uh-huh. Richmond and surrounding areas. Uh across several industries to interview the principal and find out what are the challenges they face as they grew their company. And those interviews turned into Let Go to Grow, which is our book. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I just spent the last two days with a a company that was founded uh, 27 years ago and and is still owned uh, essentially by the family, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's grown into a $600 million business. But they're they're at that tipping point where if they don't shed some of the um, 
the elements of being a family-owned business and being entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they aren't going to be able to break that billion-dollar barrier. And you know, I know that a you know, billion dollars isn't normally kind of the, <laughs> the the mark that people are shooting for because you know, when we talk about entrepreneurs, we're usually talking about a much smaller kind of company. <laughs> but um, I, I found that whole exercise very very interesting because I started the meeting off on on Wednesday saying, you know, I mean, and I know because I'm I'm a, a serial entrepreneur and I'm always okay. starting new businesses and you know have have uh, built businesses and had them fail and I'm now trying to do a couple of new things and you know the entrepreneurial thing is when the mouth speaks the hand moves right and there there's no <laughs> delay there there's you know it, when you say I'm going to move you know your foot steps out and I said you know you can't do that anymore when you've got you know 450 employees and and when when you're you know getting ready to hit the 3 quarter of a million mark or a billion uh, Mark. So, anyway, I, I would like uh, because our listeners and, and we have obviously some people who are live on the phone with us today, and sure. I, I uh, sure. thank them very much because it, it uh, makes it interesting to hear the different questions that we have at the end. So, I would say to the folks who are listening live, be thinking as Polly is talking about how what she is saying is applying to to your companies, mm-hmm. and we have members of the Executive Girlfriends Group who are everything from the solopreneur who might mm-hmm. do work sometimes for an entrepreneur, uh, you know, a smaller firm or maybe even a larger firm. We also have people who work for family-owned businesses. We have people who work for, you know, small, well-funded businesses, small businesses, not so well-funded, all the way up to people who work for, you know, Microsoft and American Express and, sure. you know, Wyndham Worldwide and Avis. And, um, and, and so I would ask just as we talk through the book, and and we talk through what you have written about and your expertise. If you could just help us out by, uh, you know, letting those who are in larger companies um, understand how these same principles can work for them that work for the early stage company, you know, absolutely working working to be the larger company. So, you know, as as I look at the outline for your book, um, it starts uh, quite obviously with growth requires letting go. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you know, the first chapter is why grow, and I think, you know, that does seem fairly redundant, but obviously you wouldn't have started the book with a chapter like that if it weren't necessary to lay that out. Well, one of the things that we talk about in the book is that growth is absolutely not a necessity. Um, There is this mantra that seems to be out there with businesses that you either grow or die and that if you're not growing, you're actually going downhill. Um, what we found was actually quite different. We found a lot of companies that had remained relatively the same size, um, both in people and in revenue, you know, adjusted for inflation, of course, but had remained roughly the same size for 20 years. And the business was throwing off, enough cash for the owner to have a nice lifestyle, um, to support the endeavor, to pay his employees well uh, or him or her employees well. And there was no need to grow. They actually had made a conscious decision not to grow their business but to stay in a much smaller structure. And what we found was, you know, this worked for some people. So then the question is, why might you want to grow? And we discovered that there were several different reasons why 
a company might want to grow, of course. Some of the interesting ones are, of course, if you have a family-owned business, which you've mentioned, and the family in in next generations or the third generation on want to come and work in the the business and get their livelihood from that business, then the business may have to grow. We interviewed this wonderful older gentleman who told us about having six children, five of whom wanted to come to work in his company. Right. And he said that was just too many snoots at the trough. And if you're <laughs> going to have that next generation come and work, then you have to get a longer trough. And there there are other reasons to grow, of course. Um, having all your eggs in one basket, so growing often means that you'll take on um, a more diverse set of, of um, clientele. There also is quite often with a smaller company, if they're hoping to sell their business at some point and you know use that as a retirement vehicle, the sale of their company, often unless they grow, they don't really have something to sell or something exactly. um, substantial enough to sell that would uh, give them the cash that they need to for the rest of their life. So we found there were several reasons why you want to grow, but what we say is if you're going to grow or not grow, make it an implicit decision, don't um, fail to grow because you haven't done the things necessary to to have that kind of um, vehicle in your building. Hold on just a second. I'm, I'm sitting here going, oh, dear, this phone's running out of batteries. We'll grab another one. Okay, you want to call back in? No, I just switched over to another phone. Oh, um, right. The one I had in my hand was running low, but there's always another one close by in this household. Good. Okay, there we go. We're all set again. Sorry about that. Well, terrific. You know, uh, you know, and as I take a look at the larger companies now, mm-hmm. over the course of the last you know, couple of years, everyone is pretty much hunkered down. Uh, you know, they've cut costs wherever it was possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they could have the same level of profitability, even though revenues were down. And so now those same companies are trying to figure out how to grow. Now it's really good for those of us who are in consulting because we are getting, you know, the phone is ringing way more than it has over the last couple of years. Because people right, 2009 and 2010 were a little bit rough. I would say so, yes. yes. <laughs> so... You know, the good news is that things are picking back up. The bad news is that companies are simply, you know, looking at growing potentially, but they're not willing to take the plunge yet to ramp their hiring back up. Uh, Now, I know that there are pockets where that's slightly different. I happen to be, uh, as I mentioned, in the travel industry, and the travel industry is still, you know, pretty much under, under a fairly significant amount of siege uh because of the cost of jet fuel right and um you know and and that kind of trickles down to the rest of the industry plus everybody in the industry is fighting uh mm-hmm. you know they're, they're, everybody's suing everybody else and we've got antitrust here and you know people wanting to pull their content out of there so um what are what are you seeing and and um on, on the larger company side of, you know, is there the imperative for them to grow? Because it's very different than the entrepreneurial situation that you just described. No, it is different. Now, the larger companies, and I'll, I'll speak to some that are headquartered here in, in our area that we actually do business with some of the big Fortune 500 companies as well as some of the smaller organizations in town. But, for instance, CarMax, I don't know if anybody is familiar with that 
organization. It's a used car right. company, but it's national. CarMax is headquartered here in, in the Richmond area, as well as Genworth, which is GE's um, spinoff of their insurance entity, and, and Capital One also, the credit card company. So we have some right. larger organizations here in our, our area, and Altria which is, and Philip Morris, which are very large organizations. Um, they are starting to hire again. Specifically, CarMax is is hiring and growing again. Capital One is growing all over the place, which tells you right away that um, people are starting to spend again, uh, which is a good thing. Genworth had, um, I've seen a little bit of growth from them. Now, not so much for Altria and Philip Morris, but uh, I haven't, haven't heard as many stories of hiring there but but you're seeing it but i taking it back to the smaller companies i would tell you that there is a huge new rebirth in entrepreneurism and i think that's pretty much across the country as people who were displaced during the last layoffs have decided they're going to start their own company <laughs> exactly and so yeah, because there's no security anymore, no reason to try to no, no reason to try to get back into the big companies. Well, and and I'm one of these, you know, lovely people who is over 50 myself, and I've been hearing from folks that are more in my age group that it's rather difficult sometimes to find employment even with some of these larger companies and so right. that you've got a lot of people who are trying to create a job for themselves by by starting their own business, um, and many of which will be successful over the years and create more jobs, which, as we know, small business is really the engine for the economy, while the Capital Ones and the CarMaxes of the world make headlines when they decide to hire 200 more people. It's the small businesses and your mid-sized companies that are actually cumulatively adding a lot more jobs. Right. So So the next chapter in the book is a new way to classify businesses. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Chicky, one of the things that we found when we were trying to say, well, what is the role of the principal as they go from being what we call a micro-business to small to mid-size, one of the problems was finding a definition of what is a small business, what is a mid-size business. If you go out to our SBA, the Small Business Administration site, what you will find is 44 pages of definitions of what a small business is. <laughs> it's, it's specific to an industry. It's, it's actually one of the more confusing things I've ever tried to read. Um, for instance, if you are, and this is a silly thing, but we, we took it right from the Small Business Administration website, if you are farming hogs or pigs, you are a small business until your annual revenue exceeds 0.75 million. But if you're producing chicken eggs, then you can be 12.5 million before you lose the label of being small business. And it is that specific mm-hmm. all through these 44 pages. Right. Well, this obviously didn't work for us as we were trying to really look at the business owner's role. Uh, so we we looked at a new way to classify businesses, and this is where we really can um, start to see correlations with larger companies. 
So let me explain. In, in a micro-business, what we call a micro-business, the principal is doing the primary work of the business. They are bringing in, they may have a, a helper or two, but they're really bringing in most of the revenue. When you get to small business, we define a small business as when the principal is now managing a group of people who are doing the primary work of the business. So you can see from that that in a micro-business, the principal is the one that is the doer and bringing in the revenue. When you move to a small business structure, the role of the principal shifts from doer to manager. Now what is important for the success of the business is not how well the principal does the primary work of the business anymore, but how well they can hire and manage others. Right, when, and again, you've, you've got the challenge, and again, I mean, I, I speak uh, as an entrepreneur myself, managing people is not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> so therein lies the rub, right? If, you, if you're going to grow, you can't do everything yourself. You've got to bring on other people. Right. And, uh, and then you've got to do something that maybe is outside your skill set. Well, and you, you absolutely, so this is why the book is called Let Go to Grow, because what is, you know, counterintuitive about this is as you grow, you actually have to give up the thing you were good at and what made you successful at the prior level. So when you were first getting started and doing everything, you were doing the primary work of the business, developing strategy, making all the tactical decisions. But as you move into that role of the manager in a small business structure, you have to give up doing the primary work of the business. If you don't, you limit the capacity and and the growth of your own business by insisting on still doing the primary work. Right. When you go to mid-size, we now say you've inserted at least one layer of management between yourself and the primary workers. And while that seems like a really small shift, going from managing workers to managing managers, it's actually what we found was the highest hurdle for small right. businesses and the, and the one that people had the most trouble doing because when you move to that role, you actually are losing some measure of control because in order to be effective at this level, you have to be able to delegate and hold others accountable. Right, but I, I can see where that's the real tipping point uh, for it being is. able to get to that next level. So, I, Yeah, I call it the big chasm. And if, we, if you wanted to look at a larger organization, think about the roles in any kind of organization. In, in a large Fortune 500 company, you have hundreds of micro, small, and mid-sized organizations embedded within this larger structure. In fact, our next book, I will already give you a hint, is going to be called Let Go to Grow Your Career. We're already starting to do some research for it, which will be applying some of these same principles to people who want to move up within larger organizations. Right. There are some different challenges they face rather than business owners, but a lot of it still applies. Definitely. Well, the next section of the book, you know, I mean, you've just described some of the things in running a microbusiness. The next thing is actually moving to that level, that next mm-hmm. level. And it's not just inserting that layer, but it's getting the right people in the right jobs. And this is one I'm really, <laughs> really passionate about. And, you know, the the place where we were this week, 
um, was just a perfect picture of that. They, you know, again, this company had been around for 27 years, and mm-hmm. you know, so many of the people had been there forever. They hadn't created any path for people to move ahead other okay. than taking their frontline people, making them supervisors or managers, which they weren't necessarily suited for. But the the amazing thing was that all the problem solving, all the troubleshooting, all the firefighting had escalated all the way up the value chain, up all the way up to the CEO. Everybody did firefighting the better part of their day. And, oh you know, we, we suggested that they create a firefighting function and that that was a promotion, <laughs> you know, from the front line. And that, you know, that the managers, supervisors needed to start supervising, managers needed right. to start managing and you know, and the more senior people needed to start thinking strategically instead of so tactically. So getting the right people in the right job is is huge, and creating jobs that need to be done that are being done inappropriately by those who shouldn't be focusing on those things. So t- tell me a little bit about that chapter. Well, the getting the right people in in the right jobs is in the small business section of the book. It, the book is, as you as you know, split into three sections. Um, a section for micro businesses, a section for small, and a section for mid-sized, and the transition chapter in between each of those. But um, the getting the right people in in the right jobs. This is where we saw so many people stumbling, because they tend to go out and and make some some very common mistakes. So when our small or mid-sized companies were going out to look for people. Um, often they would do that with little more than a job title, but even if they had a job description and had thought somewhat about what they wanted, most of the things that they were looking for in in possible candidates were have this has this person done this in a previous job so if i 'm going to be hiring a customer service worker, have they done customer service work before, and if not then they wouldn't consider them. Whereas what we are trying to teach people is that, at least in lower-level jobs, and this is talking about primary workers, so frontline workers, um, a lot of the skills that you need them to do, the task types of things, can be trained. In fact, you're going to train them on your systems anyway. What you should be looking for instead is cognitive capability and behaviors. So instead of trying to find just somebody who's done customer service work before, let's look at what are the key behaviors that you want in a really great customer service worker. And perhaps it's detail orientation, perhaps it's mm-hmm. people and communication skills, um, perhaps um, maybe in all of your workers you're looking for people who have a good solid work ethic. Well, these are things that you can't train or will have much more difficulty training. It's very difficult to take somebody with a very poor work ethic and suddenly make them into a superstar. But it's fairly easy to take a person with a good work ethic and a a natural curiosity or a willingness to learn and then take them through the steps of your customer service system. The other thing to look for, of course, is cognitive capability because you're not likely to make employees smarter after they get in your organization. So if you want smart employees, you have to hire smart people. So we looked at, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Oh, yeah. No, it it very definitely does. And, you know, 
I, I see people still doing hiring the same way that they always have, you know, writing right. job descriptions the way that they always have. And one of the right. things that we were bantering about yesterday with this client was, you know, we talked so much the day before, which was, you know, with the partners of the firm, mm-hmm. um, about the importance of having the right metrics and and the right rewards, and that you know what what gets rewarded gets repeated, and what gets right. measured gets accomplished. <laughs> and you know, I said, why don't your job descriptions include how people are going to be measured and what they're going to be rewarded on? Because, you know, to me, that's central. Uh, you know, to finding the right person for the right job. Not only are they well suited, but they understand how they're going to be measured and and what the reward is at the end of the day. Right, and and we go into that quite a bit in the next chapter, which is managing workers, where we talk about goal setting, and um, we say what every worker we've ever run into wants is to be a recognized contributing member of a winning team. They want to know that their company is moving in the right direction, that it is a winning team. Uh, They want to be recognized for their contributions, and they want to know how to contribute. So it's it's that very simple thing, a recognized contributing member of a winning team. And if you can create that within the organization, that you will have people that will be moving in the right direction. So we go into quite a bit about um, how to manage people, um, we're both maybe a little old school in that we believe in both a carrot and a stick approach. In other words, there needs to be not just rewards, but also consequences for not performing mm-hmm. in the right way. And and so we go into quite a bit of managing people within within that chapter. Now, on the contrary, though, managing managers we see as just slightly different, and and that chapter takes a different take on the whole thing. So in in part four of the book, which is transitioning from a small business to a mid-sized business, Mm -hmm. and again, I think in in a a large company, I would correlate that to, um, you know, a a small region or a small division of a company to actually growing that division. You know, what what are the key things that are necessary there? Well, We talk about getting the right managers in place, which we say is different than hiring frontline workers because there you actually have a make-or-buy decision. When you're bringing in entry-level kinds of folks, of course you're going to go outside of your organization to get talent. There's unlikely to be people within the organization to fill those entry-level roles. However, when you are trying to bring in supervision or management, it's make-or-buy. Are you going to develop your people within your organization so that you have folks that are ready to move into those roles as your organization grows and expands? Or are you going to go outside of your organization to get talent and bring it in? And and that decision can't be made at the last minute because if you actually are going to develop people inside, that needs to start early. You need to have a plan uh, for how you're going to create the leaders within your organization so they'll be ready. Uh, The other thing that we found, at least for smaller organizations, and I think this is probably likely to happen within larger organizations also, the person who has been that wonderful, loyal employee that maybe you brought on very early in the organization has been there 20 years, 
there's now a management position open, but that person just is not well suited to go into that next level. So what do you do with that wonderful, loyal employee? You're either going to have to layer them or worse, you may have to actually let them go if they cannot stay at that lower position. And it it becomes, at least for the entrepreneurs that we interviewed, this was one of the most gut-wrenching things that they dealt with. We actually talked to one woman who fired her sister twice. (laughs) (laughs) She said the second time it actually took. But but so many many managers and owners of small and mid-sized companies hire friends and family into roles. Right. Because that's well, who they know. Exactly. Well, and, you and I both work with our husbands. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm sure there's never been a time that you've wanted to fire your husband. <laughs> of course not. Um, <laughs> but but we we found these just you know gut wrenching decisions. Um, we've also found cases along the way, and this was quite unusual, where the principal themselves could not take the organization to the next level, but it was a great organization, and they actually stepped out of that role. So in one case, we interviewed a company where the owner had actually moved to Florida, so he's somewhere down there with with a lot of our listeners today, but he had a great company here in Richmond that um, had grown to a very robust mid-sized structure, and he realized that he didn't like running an enterprise, and he wasn't all that good at it. What he really excelled at was sales. And so he hired a president for his organization, a professional manager, and worked with him for about 18 months to make sure that he really understood the, the new president, understood the business. And and then he moved to Florida, where we understand he plays a lot of golf and still handles the major accounts for the firm. He put himself into a sales role and gave right. the CEO position away. And his well, company has I've, continued I've been, to grow. I've been there and done that, too. <laughs> yes, have you? I, I think have, it takes and, a special person to do that. Well, it it um, it is a very, very difficult thing because um, it's interesting when you're trying to raise money, mm-hmm. the investment community will often say that the founder can't be the CEO that takes the company to that next level. And... Um, you know, going through that personally uh, was probably one of the most difficult things that I ever did because I, you know, I actually knew that I could be the CEO. What I yes. what I knew very clearly is that I couldn't be the COO or the president because I I, I am not tactical enough. Okay. Um, and I don't enjoy managing people, so I needed someone in that <laughs> layer. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. But sometimes it's it's the only choice that you get to make, uh, particularly if somebody else is writing the the checks, such as an investor. So, right. Yes. You know, I think so, there's a very different aspect when when you've got large companies and mm-hmm. and a CEO realizes that they should step into the chairman role, which you know quite often you see that. Yes. Yes. That that happens more often. Um, there's just two other pieces of what I call the three-legged stool of, of infrastructure. When you get to be a mid-sized structure, you do need to have the right managers in place, and we've already discussed that, but there really is a couple of other things. First of all, in order to hold people accountable and delegate effectively, which you have to do at that size, you can no longer handle 
having 40 direct reports, which we saw more than one company doing. Uh, but you have to have the right managers in place, but you need two things. We, you also need documented process. And I will tell you that is the least sexy thing that we talk to business owners about, is documenting their processes. Uh, because, frankly, no one is going to pay you a nickel more because your processes are well documented. But if you don't have good process documentation, you can't communicate across a larger organization right. how you want things done. Um, and the last thing is a set of robust metrics, and you've you've talked about metrics several times. And we go into some detail about how to think about creating metrics for your organization. And and in this case, um, metrics is more than just your P&L. If you're waiting to see the results of your organization in your monthly P&L, a lot of times things have happened that are it's almost too late to recover. So we look at um, helping companies to think about daily, weekly, biweekly, semi-monthly, whatever kinds of <laughs> metrics that they need to be looking at in order to know that their company is on the right track. Because the only thing worse than not delegating when you need to is delegating before you've done the groundwork, and the groundwork <laughs> is those right. three things, good managers, documented process, and robust metrics. And if you have those three things in place, then the manager actually can or the owner can let go a little bit and sleep at night knowing that their company is clicking along the right way. And in the really well-run companies we saw, that's what they had. Those were the component pieces. So what was your favorite story, uh, just in closing, your favorite story. You interviewed a lot of people. Oh, we did. We did. What, what was your favorite, uh, you know, what, what just sticks out to you and, and is something that you retell over and over again? Uh, well, there was, and I'll, I'll use one of our, our favorite business owners. Now, this is a woman named Sharon Dabney Waldridge. She has a uh, a large commercial governmental cleaning organization. It's called Clean Care. And when she was transitioning from being a micro to a small business, and this was about 20 years ago, she was negotiating her first huge government contract. And this was going to get her out of the residential cleaning business and into being doing big commercial contracts. And she had crews that she worked with, but she was literally still doing the primary work of the business. And she said that her phone rang. And she could see on the faceplate that it was the name of the gentleman who she was negotiating this bid with. And she knew that the bid was about to be awarded, and she knew this was probably an important conversation if he still wanted to talk to her. But she couldn't get to the telephone in time because at that point she was elbow deep cleaning a toilet. At that point she said, the light bulb went off in her head, and she knew it was time to give up doing the primary work of the business, which was janitorial work. And not that she's she won't clean a toilet now if if it if the right. need arose, but she is no longer doing that. In fact, she has a very successful um, mid-sized company now that hire or has about well a couple hundred people in it. So it's a nice well. story. 
That's that that's great. And again, I I uh, certainly uh, so much of this resonates with me because I I've gone back and forth on mm-hmm. on whether to keep my business small or grow large because uh I remember what it was like when we were doing, you know, a million, mm-hmm. 2 million a year and uh, it's a very different thing uh as an entrepreneur to have that size business versus just doing it yourself and and uh, yeah, our our government doesn't make it actually very appealing to no. grow beyond a certain size because of the tax uh consequences of doing well, and, that. Well, and but, later down the road the health care. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely. coming up to to have more regulation on on smaller businesses. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, Polly, it has been really great. I want to give a a chance if there's anybody uh that wants to uh ask a question. I know we uh we do have a, a human resource professional on the phone so you've got <laughs> yes. a, a partner Somebody who does work there similar with to Jennifer. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> So if there are any questions, uh, please remember to take yourself off mute or just any comments about anything that Polly uh, shared with us today. Okay. Well, everybody is uh, is quiet today, yes. so I will uh, I will respect that. And Polly, I just want to thank you again. You are uh, certainly welcome to to hang on the call. We spend the rest of the time just. Uh, you know, kind of catching up with one another and and uh, hearing about the high points of of the past week and any any challenges that folks are facing. And uh, you're also welcome to join us anytime uh, on a well, call. Thank we, you very we, much. We, this has been very nice. every Friday at four o'clock Eastern. Uh, same same phone number. And uh, next week, our guest is Maddie Ditchwald, who wrote a book called Influence, How Women's Soaring Economic Power Will Transform Our World for the Better. So uh, that that is one I'm looking forward to. Before we uh, uh, wind up the recording, Polly, can you tell folks how they can get in touch with you? Yes, um, they can find both our book which I I have to tell you, we're in the soft launch stage. Our book has only been out two weeks, and right now it is available exclusively at our website uh, until we finish going through the review process with some of the larger organizations, um, you know, the Inc. magazines and Fortune and so on. Uh, Right now they can go to www.whitestonepartnersinc.com and find Let Go to Grow there or find more information about our organization. Okay, terrific. And we have also put on the Executive Girlfriends group site, uh, I believe, Polly, you should have received an invitation. Mm -hmm. So uh, Polly's contact information personally uh, will be there. And uh, we look forward to hearing uh, about your next book. Uh, It sounds fascinating, and I think, you know, always taking a look at how we can grow from a career perspective is very important to this group. So when when you get that book out, please let us know. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Terrific. And with that, I'm going to stop the recording because what's said on the rest of the egg call stays on the egg call. (laughs) 